0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 14 through 21. The word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, your own relatives, those who have the right to redeem your property along with the entire house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the residents of Jerusalem have said, you are far from the Lord, this land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore... Say this, say, this is what the Lord God says, though I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they arrive there, they will remove all the important acts and detestable uh, practices from it. And I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their hearthstone from their bodies and I will give them a heart of flesh. So that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those who, whose hearts pursue their desire for abhorrent acts and detestable practices, I will bring their conduct down on their heads. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You guys have a seat. It's good to be with you this morning as we uh, continue our study here in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel, we, we, we kind of went through Ezekiel 8 through 11 last week, but noted that chapter 11 kind of acts as a hinge for the rest of Ezekiel, or really a hinge in terms of understanding the place of Ezekiel in the larger story um, of the Bible um, I don't know about you, uh, I know about myself, as you guys know, I, I like reading, I like books, I like watching good movies, especially those like, movie sagas, and, but have you ever been reading a good book or watching a movie and you come to the, like, the darkest place of the storyline, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you come to the place where you're like, I am not sure how the author is going to move us out of this darkness. Have you ever come to a place like that, like finding yourself in that moment where you're like... Man, this seems like a far, like we are far off from being where we should be. And I'm not sure exactly how the author or the director of this movie or whatever is going to move us from where we are presently to the climactic end. Uh, It has to get better from here, but we're not really sure how we move from this place, from here to there. You ever felt like that? You ever been in a season where you felt like that, where you're in a dark, difficult season, you're just not really sure. You know God, you love Him. And you're trusting him, but you're not really sure how he's going to move you from that present darkness, that present dryness, to something better. You know there's promises of God, but you're not really sure how he moves us from one place to the next. Well, one of my favorite movie uh, cinematic uh, uh, stuff is, is, is Marvel Cinematic Universe. And most of you guys know this. I'm a big Marvel fan, and so I hopefully this doesn't offend anyone, but we're going to go ahead and go with it anyway. Um, uh, but at the first kind of series of the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of comes to a climactic end with the last two movies in Avengers, which is the Affinity War and Endgame. And if you're familiar with the storyline, if you haven't, by the way, there's going to be a lot of stuff here. If you haven't watched it, you should have watched it by now, so I'm just going to ruin it really for you if you haven't. Um, but it's okay. Uh, but Infinity War, which is the first part of the two-part ending, all right, two three-hour movies, ends in the darkest place imaginable in the Marvel Universe, at least up to this point. I, I, you end with this apparent failure of the Avengers who have attempted to thwart Thanos, the big baddie, right, in the whole universe, who's been collecting all the Infinity Stones for the purpose of destroying half of the universe. And the Marvel, um, these, the, the, the Avengers, have been doing everything they can to make sure that does not happen Yet at the end of the movie, it appears as if Thanos has won. Like three hours, millions of dollars spent on a movie, and it ends in darkness. There's not many people who have the guts to end a movie in darkness, end it in dryness, end it in failure. And I remember how I felt when I was sitting in the theater with my family, and we're big, big, and we're big into this, and. Again, judge me if you think I'm a bad parent for this, but we're all sitting in there together. And at the end, and all of the heroes are dissolving, apparently looking like they're dying, a bunch of them, not all of them. Like, I am choking back tears. My youngest, Judson, is over here in puron distress of, like, Spider-Man has just dissolved. How could that possibly happen? How do we go from here? And then we have to wait two years before the second part comes out, Right? That's kind of how things felt in Ezekiel's day, I bet. Right? The the exiles felt like all was lost. How are we going to get from here to there? Right? How are we going to get from here to there? And, And it's not always easy to figure that out, right? It feels like for them in that moment, God has abandoned Jerusalem. He's abandoned the temple. He's even acted in judgment against it by using their own foreign enemies in the moment, in that moment, as instruments in his judgment. If he has acted in such ways back home, you might be thinking, if you were in exile in Ezekiel's day, what hope do we have in Babylon? They have suffered his banishment there already, so his punishment for us must be worse, right? How is it gonna? Where are we gonna see light? Will we see light? But here's the thing that I want us to see. It kind of leads into the main idea that I want to get at this morning: is that our micro stories, and friends, this is a great principle for all of us to really think in. Our micro stories are some, our own individual stories. Don't always reveal, or not always easy to see, the macro purposes and plans of God. The difference between micro and micro and macro: Micro's is me macros, the whole, it's like kind of starting a movie in the middle and you're like, okay, I think I got the movie, but you have no idea what's going on in the movie or reading a book, like starting at chapter eight in a book and never actually knowing what's coming before that. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm entering middle of the storyline. Well, that's kind of sometimes how we feel. We kind of read our own stories and we think, well, our own stories must be reflective of reality. But sometimes in the midst of that, we're not able to see, in fact, I'd say more often than not, we're not able to see all the bigger purposes and plans of God. So here's my main idea this morning that I want us to think about as we look at this hinge chapter of chapter 11 and really think about what is Ezekiel's message for the larger story of redemption that we see unfolding in Scripture. And it is this, God's kingdom carries on. That's the, that's the title. God's kingdom carries on. God's kingdom carries on even in the midst of life's darkest moments because God's work of redemption promises that we will have a people, that he will have a people dwelling in an eternal home, living under his rule and blessing. God's kingdom carries on because God has promised that there will be a people living in an eternal dwelling under his rule and blessing forever and ever and ever. There's a message buried in Ezekiel that's lifting up above the current context of the Israelites. And he is showing the Israelites, in by virtue showing us who read many, many years after the fact and centuries after the fact, that God's kingdom carries on, even if in the middle of it we don't quite see that. So the context of last week is simply this. We asked the question, and we got into... The last two weeks have been incredibly dark. Ben laid out a dark message for us two weeks ago. And I carried on with that the week after that, so I'm, you know, it's, just, it's been heavy. But the main question that we asked last week was, how does God deal with idolatry? And he takes us through this vision of the temple, and he shows us how bad the situation is. And we know that God does three things in light of idolatry. He exposes it, so he, he, won't, let it, he won't let it not go, on, go unexposed. He condemns it. And then, most importantly, he will forsake those who are fake in their spirituality or fake Christians. And so as I noted there, there was also another question that I said last week that we wanted to answer, but we were going to say for this week. And in fact, I would say, as important as that question was last week, this one might be even more important. Because if God does that with idolatry, we are forced to ask the question as what will he deal, do with his own promises? What will he do with his own covenant he's made with his people? What will he do with his people? This is a prominent theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, especially in the later divided kingdom and in the prophets and the exilic period there in the, in the prophets. And it's important for us to understand how God answers that question. It's so prominent is this theme. Is in a, uh, I was reading this week in my own, my own personal uh, devotion time, Psalm 77, which I thought was extremely pertinent and appropriate for this sermon. Read, listen to this. As I cry aloud to the Lord, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. You ever felt, have you ever felt that way? Just in a place where you refuse to be comforted, you're in your midst of darkness. I, I, I have felt that way. It says, I think of God, I groan, I meditate, and my spirit becomes weak. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night I remember my music. I meditate on my in my heart and my spirit ponders: Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has His faithful love ceased forever? Is His promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger withheld His compassion? So I say, I am grieved at the right hand of the Most High has changed. And this is how He feels in His moment. We probably have all felt this in some ways. Has he changed? Verse 11, I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What is God, What God is great like you? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The water saw you. It trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lightning lit up the world, and the earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea, and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. Let me read that again. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What an appropriate psalm to consider as we think about this larger question. Has God or will God forget his people? Will God have finally abandoned his covenant? Three questions I want to answer this morning from Ezekiel 13. 11 primarily, but we'll look at some other broader parts of Ezekiel. One is, has God, that's the question, right? Has God abandoned his people? The second is, who are God's people or who is God's remnant? That's the thing that kind of runs through Ezekiel 8 through 11 here in Ezekiel's own words. And then the third question will be simply application. What does that mean for you and me? How does that apply to you and me? Excuse me. <clears throat> so this morning, I just want to answer that first question Has God abandoned his people. Ezekiel 8.1, as we started last week, begins with uh, Ezekiel in his house after all of this enacted theater that he had done the week before. We saw Ben talk it, walk us through. Um, And he's in the house and he's gotten the attention of the elders and the elders are there with him. And all of a sudden this vision takes place. And so there's a context here that we need to pay attention to. Ezekiel is a messenger by which God seeks to speak to the elders there in... Babylon. They're not just an incidental character reference throughout this whole thing. It's like, Ezekiel, God gives a vision, and when God gives a vision, it just so happens that the elders are there with him. So in other words, what God would have us do is he has his vision. He gives Ezekiel and He's of how he's going to deal with all the people back in Jerusalem and the temple. And the point that he wants us to pay attention to, if we'll just subtly watch, is that God is speaking to his people in exile. That should be a huge point for us. If God has abandoned his people, then why in the world is he speaking to his people in exile? But they didn't quite get that. In fact, in Ezekiel's own words, in Ezekiel 9, uh, 8, he says... Let me find it here. He says, while they were killing, I was left alone, Ezekiel says, and I fell face down and cried out, "Oh Lord God, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel when you pour out your wrath on Jerusalem? So Ezekiel's assumption here is the same assumption that he does right in verse 13 of chapter 11 before we get into God's response to that question. He says, now while I was prophesying Pelatiah, the son of Benadiah, died, and when I fell face down and cried out loudly, O oh Lord, you are bringing a remnant to the end of Israel to an end. So in other words, the assumption is, as God's speaking to Ezekiel, that all the good things are still back in Jerusalem and God is bringing an end to his redemptive purposes. Make sense? This is, this is Ezekiel's assumption. This is most likely a projection even of the elders' assumption. They are wondering, okay, if it's that bad there, That means all is lost. Make sense? All is lost. The remnant in Jerusalem are done. And if the remnant in Jerusalem are done, then what does that make of God's promises? And that's where we get to 14 through 21, which we read as our opening text. And I just want to walk through this. And this is God's response to Ezekiel's assumptions. Poor assumptions, by the way. Poor assumptions. The people of Israel, he says... The whole kinsmen of Ezekiel and all the exiles of Israel are the remnant of God, essentially. That's what God wants him to see. They, he's there, and how do we know that? What does it say right there in verse, verse uh, 16? Um, excuse me, I'm finding it here. Son of man, your own relatives, those who, are, who, have, who have the right to redeem your property along with the entire house of Israel... All of them are those with whom the residents of Jerusalem have said, you are far from God, and this land now has been given to us as a possession. But look what God says there at the end of verse 16. No, though I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary with them there. So no, God's not done with his promises. God's with his people in exile. God is with his people right there in the midst of it. He's judging harshly the leaders and all the establishment back in Jerusalem and back in the temple. But he is not done with his promises. The leaders and the residents of Jerusalem thought that the land was theirs because God was judging those people that he had pulled out and sent to Babylon. And they arrogantly thought that this land was theirs and they could do what they want to and they were going to be the hope for the restoration of Israel. And God puts a flat end to that notion here for Ezekiel. He corrects this poor assessment. I will gather them from the nations in which I have driven them. They will return to the land and remove the defilements of their predecessors. And he even goes so far as to say and gives us a little glimpse into the future of when we read Ezekiel 36 and 37. He says, and I will ensure that this people will be an internal people. And how does he do that? I will give them a new heart, give them a new spirit. I will, they shall be my people, I will be their God. Now, the problem we have when we read this text is we've got to understand what's happening in the immediate or will happen in the immediate 70 years or so and what is happening in the larger picture of redemption. God does send Israel back to uh, Jerusalem. He does send them back in through, and you can go back and really read Nehemiah, and you can read Ezra, and you see there's been this reestablishment. So the, city, the walls of the city have been built, the temple has been rebuilt, and the worship of the temple has been reestablished. But there's something missing. And by the way, go read the, uh, um, oh gosh, Jesus Storybook Bible on this. And it basically describes what's happening back there as this, they go back, they're worshiping, should be a happy time, but all the old men are sad. That's what it describes in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's wonderful. You know why they're sad? Because God's not there. God's not in the temple. The, the spirit that was in the Holy of Holies wasn't coming out anymore. There was no indication that God was with them back there. Yes, He sent them back there, and there's this like, literal uh, 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 restoration that's going to happen there, but but it's only a picture of something that's bigger and greater that's going to happen. The temple was lifeless. The old men were crying. God's Spirit does not seem to dwell there any longer. There is no new spirit. There is no new heart. In fact, what would follow is 400 years of complete and utter silence by God until the unfolding of the New Testament. It's in that moment, it's in that promise, when Jesus comes, that God fulfills his promises. Amen. That he will give a people a new heart. And he will give them a new spirit. He will do this primarily through his own saving work on the cross and his resurrection. He would do it by the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives. All of this would come to fulfillment. So in other words, what we have to look at this is There's an already reality when we read this text, but we also got to realize there's a much more to come reality of this text. Right? Because all the new covenant fulfills all that God has planned in His whole redemption purposes. So that leads us to the second question we need to ask this morning. If we're going to deal with whether God abandons, which again, I think we can come to a conclusion. No, He doesn't abandon His people, which we'll talk more about that in our application point here in a little bit. We still need to ask the question, of then who is God's remnant? Is it simply people who are in Babylon? Partially. Who are God's people? Well, I think the answer comes in a more fundamental consideration of what is the kingdom of God? And if we don't understand what the kingdom of God is and how that kingdom of God is being revealed from Genesis to Revelation, then we don't really understand what God is doing. And so we have to ask the question before we ask who the people of God are is what is the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God, if you want to put it in this broadest context, and we could say a lot about the kingdom of God, but we can say a lot here, is it's the rule and reign of God, minimally. But it seems to be, as we go through Scripture, a people God is ruling and reigning in a particular place in which He will rule and reign them, and they will live under His rule and blessing. So that's what we see throughout the Scriptures, is this recovery of the kingdom of God's rule. Not that the kingdom of God ever didn't rule, but the fact that it's visibly that God's always ruling and reigning a people in a place under his rule and blessing. Now, I have never, never found a book better to help us understand this, and in my personal opinion, than a book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture. And I just want to say this up front. We have about eight copies. Don't run. all right. Eight copies down in, the, uh, in our, our book bin, down at the lower end of the cafe. One copy per family, first come, first serve. Once they're gone, they're gone. If you want to take one of those, there's actually a a summary of it right back on the back table of this, what I'm about to describe. But I have found him, his helpfulness of understanding the, the kingdom pattern of Scripture to be one of the most helpful ways of a Bible believer to actually understand what the Bible's doing from bookend to bookend. And when we understand what God's doing from bookend to bookend, it's easier to understand what God's doing in Ezekiel. Does that make sense? So we start with book bookend to bookend. What is the bigger picture of what the Bible is saying from beginning the one story and then begin to go back to the micro story, as we said earlier, and begin to understand what's going on there. So to be clear, um, this is not, I want to say this up front, this is not new to Roberts. Like he didn't just invent this framework himself a couple years ago, a few years ago when he wrote this book. He's recapitulating all the wonderful work of the Puritans, all the wonderful work of the reformers, and even the wonderful work of the church fathers. And so you would do yourself well to know church history, but he's summarizing all this in a very helpful small book, about 190 pages worth your read, okay? So if you get a chance to pick up one of those copies, great, go do it, okay? Church history matters, all right? And when we're deficient on church history, we're susceptible to a whole lot of error. And I think what he does here in this one book, and I'm going to give you a summary of the book in, 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 in this point, will help us. So immensely to understand what's happening in Ezekiel. So here's what we need to do. What he does in this book that I think is so brilliant is that he draws out a wide lens. He sees the Bible from a wide lens. And he helps us, by virtue of that, see what's happening in Ezekiel and in the whole Old Testament for sure. And so what he deals with is this pattern of the kingdom. God's rule God's people, God's place. The best way I say it is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. It's not new to him. Lots of other guys have articulated it that way. He just does a good job of summarizing it well. And so he notes that in the the pattern of the kingdom is is right there in the garden. If you go back and look at uh, Genesis chapter one, two, and three, you find this pattern right there in the garden. There's God's people who are what? Adam and Eve in God's place right there in Eden. Right, the perfect garden, who are living under what? His rule and blessing, submitting to his word. And to be under God's rule in, in the Bible is always to enjoy the blessings of being under his word. God's original creation shows this model from as clearly as anywhere in the Bible. But we also know what happens next, don't we? You might call this the par this is what um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you might call this the parish kingdom. This is what he calls it. Unfortunately, things don't they go poorly after this point, don't they? Adam and Eve try to run their own lives right out of God's hands. What does that mean? They're not God's people. They no longer are God's people because they turn away from Him. He turns away from them as well. They are banished from where? God's place. They're taken out of the garden. And they no longer are under God's rule because and enjoy His blessing. Instead, they Face his curse and his judgment. But God, in his great love, before even in the midst of that banishment, in the midst of that perishing kingdom, he shows his great love by what we call, and it's a big fancy word, so don't get all stirred up about, called the proto euangelion In other words, the gospel before. That's all it is. You know what it is? 315. God says, I will give you a seed, thieve, and he will crush the serpent. That's the proto-euangelion, and that's a big word. Don't worry about it, okay? Talk about it after the fact, all right, if you need to. But the reality is here is that God still, even in the midst of the perishing kingdom, shows them that he will not let it remain this way. He shows the gospel before the gospel is fully revealed in Jesus, right there. So you have the pattern of the kingdom, then the kingdom perishes, and then God continues to show us the pictures of the promised kingdom, namely in Abraham, or Abram at the time, And he makes some unconditional promises to him through his descendants. And he will establish his kingdom again. They will be God's people living in God's place, the land, under God's rule and blessing. And through them, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That promise is the gospel. It's a partial fulfillment. It's partially fulfilled in the history of Israel. But it's only finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's always pointing to Jesus always pointing to Jesus. And so then from that point in Abraham, there's this partial kingdom that we continue to see throughout the Old Testament, yes? God's promised kingdom of Abraham has been partially fulfilled in Israel's history. Through the exodus from Egypt, God makes Abraham's descendants his own people. At Mount Sinai, he gives them his law so that they might live under his rule and enjoy his blessing. As Adam and Eve did in the garden before they sinned, the blessing is marked chiefly by God's presence with his people in the tabernacle. Again, he sanctuaries with his people. That's evidence of God's blessing. And under Joshua, they enter the land, and by the time of King David and Solomon, they enjoy peace and prosperity there. It's a partial kingdom. You might call it a shadow kingdom. It's a picture of something better and bigger and better. Under, and, then, and then after that, that is the high point of the history of Israel before everything starts falling apart. The wheels begin to fall off the bush, they say. They were God's people in God's place, the land of Canaan under God's rule and therefore enjoying his blessing. But the promises made to Abraham had still not yet been completed. Make sure you understand that. We'll see that later on as we look at, his, at Hebrews and Galatians. The problem was sin. Sin had not yet been fully dealt with. The continual disobedience of the people of Israel was a massive problem and therefore a massive challenge to God's plan because God is holy. That was soon to be lead to the dismantling of this partial kingdom as Israel fell apart. And now where we are in our study in Ezekiel is we're part of this prophesied kingdom. After the death of King Solomon, civil war broke out. The kingdom split, as we all know, into two parts, Israel the north and Judah in the south, and neither was strong. Neither. After 200 years of separate existence, the northern kingdom finally is destroyed by the Assyrians, and ultimately later the southern kingdom has struggled on, on for maybe another century, but then too was conquered, and its inhabitants were taken into exile in Babylon. I.e., Ezekiel, now, where we are. And during this depressing period in their history, God spoke to the people of Israel, and Judah threw them some prophets, and He explained that they were being punished for their sin, but still offered hope for the future. That's why we can do the law gospel reading we did this morning. God is serious about sin, but he will give his people a new heart and a new spirit. How does that all work out? Well, it's because we're seeing fulfillment, and that, and that fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ as we continue to carry on. So the people of Israel, the people of Judah must have thought that the time had come when they were allowed to return to, Ezekiel, to, to from exile, but God had made clear that that was not the time of salvation, but that was still in the future for them, very much still much in the future. That is where the Old Testament ends and the waiting period begins. Till what we might call the present kingdom. 400 years pass. Everyone's wondering, is God still there? He's been awfully quiet these days. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Comes in with his public ministry. Born of a virgin. In his ministry, he grows up and become, his ministry starts. And, and here's what we see in Mark 1.15. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. The waiting was over. God's king had come to establish his kingdom. His life, teaching, and miracles all proved that he was who he said he was. God himself in human form. He had the power to put everything right again. He chose a very surprising way to do it, though, through the weakness on the cross. It was by his death that Jesus dealt with the problem of sin and made it possible for human beings to be made right with God again. The resurrection proved the success of Jesus' rescue mission on the cross when he defeated death. Those who trust in Christ can look forward, and only those who look trust in Christ can look forward to a future home with God. Now, you and I are in the church, where eh? We are now the church post-Jesus, and we are preaching that message. You might call it the perfected kingdom. One day Christ will... I'm sorry, it's called the proclaimed kingdom. He fills his people with his spirit, and he ascends into heaven. The delay is to enable more people to hear about the good news of Christ so that they can put their trust in him and be ready for him when he comes. He lives during this period, which the Bible calls the last day. This is what we are. We're in the last days, if you will. And I believe, personally, the last days have always been. I think it's since Jesus is, uh, has, has ascended, that the church has been in the last days. I'm an amulamnialist, so don't, don't throw rocks, Okay. This is where I am. And I think this is the best reading of the Scriptures. In the book of Revelation, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead here, it all began on the day of Pentecost when God sent the Spirit to equip His church to tell the whole world about Jesus. This is what we're about. This is what we're supposed to be. We're proclaiming this kingdom, of Jesus, until He returns. That is the objective of the last days. Until the perfect kingdom comes. When Christ returns. There will be a great division. His enemies will be separated from His goodness in hell, but His people will join Him in the perfect creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Then at last, the gospel promises will come to their full completion. That's what will happen. God's people, Christians from all nations, in God's place, the new creation, heavens and earth, under God's rule and blessing, enjoying His blessing forever and ever and ever. And nothing and nothing, nothing will spoil that ending. That is, if you have never understood the Bible, at least broadly in that way, I believe you've missed the entirety of God's Wonderful Plan. And it's really hard for us to read other parts, micro parts of the scriptures if we don't understand that that's the big picture of everything that has happened. So how does this answer the question we said, who are God's people? Here are who God's people. God's people have always been a remnant people. Always been a remnant people, and God's remnant are those spiritually elect in all times, for, in all places, from the promise of the gospel in Genesis three fifteen to the consummation of it in Revelation twenty one. That's the people of God. Spiritual people, we might call them spiritual Israel, was always the true people, not simply visible Israel. Very, very important. And so the promises weren't about resurrecting a temple or a land or a city in their own context, but a bigger picture of what God is doing. Galatians 3 helps us see some of these patterns. We're going, we could look at a lot of New Testament here, but I'm just going to look at a couple passages. Here's what Paul says about Abraham's promise. It says, just like Abraham who believed God, it was credited to him for righteousness. So in other words, what was the promise God made with Abraham, it was based on his what? His faith. The promise was never for anything other than by faith. And it says in verse 7, and you know then that those who have faith, these are, the Ab- are Abraham's sons. In other words, what he's saying to the Gentiles there in Galatia, you are just as much sons of Abraham because you have faith in the promise that God gave Abraham that he would bless all, he'd have a people for himself who will bless all the nations. That's what the whole picture is about. Now, the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. Isaac was never a genetic line, per se. He was a what? Child of promise. If it was merely a genetic line that God needed, Ishmael would have done just fine, thank you very much. In fact, Ishmael's line did quite well. They multiply rapidly. And so if it was about a people, a genetic line, it was never about that. It was about a people of promise. No, God's people were a spiritually promised people who lived by faith in God's ability to call a people out from the nations, starting with one nation, so that all the nations would be blessed by the same gospel, by the same work of salvation, through the same Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. This is what it's always been about and in case you're wondering, well, then what happens is there literal fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. Here's what Abraham thought of those promises it says in uh, Hebrews 8, I'm Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 11 about Abraham. But if you, I'm sorry, looking at the wrong chapter here. By faith Abraham when he was called obeyed and set out to the place that he was going to receive as an inheritance and he went out even though he did not know where he was going. Verse 9 By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob and co-heirs of the same promise and promise spiritual promise. Verse 10 for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham Set foot in Canaan, but God never, but Abraham never set foot in the kingdom of God until it's consummated in Jesus. The promise was always the same. God wasn't, and just be careful, he's not replacing one people with another people. He's continuing the line. He's grafting in the line and he's offering it to the nations the New Testament is not a separate plan. It's not a parenthesis in God's plan, but a continuation of the one plan, the one covenant of God. The Gentiles were not a concession for God, but always part of the one people of God. So what does this mean for you and me? This is where we want to land the plane this morning. Because this is where it matters. How does the message and the hope and the message that God sends in Ezekiel eleven fourteen 14 through 21... What does it mean for you and me today? It means at least, number one, God has and will not ever abandon his own people. He has never abandoned and he will never abandon his own people. Life is indeed filled with many dark and dry seasons. Amen. Have you been there? I asked it earlier. Got a few sheepish nods here and there. But I know some of you guys and I know you've been there. I mean, God, it's filled with it. And Christians are not exempt from these dry seasons and these dark seasons. And we need to be very mindful of that. It's easy to start thinking that God distances himself when we're in dark seasons, is it not? I know I feel that way. God, are you? I feel like you're getting further away. It's like, I haven't moved. If anyone's moved, you've moved. Right? But it's easy to feel that way. It's easy to feel like, I didn't sign up for this, God. Like, I thought this was going to go way differently if I gave my life to you. But again, by the way, it's why the prosperity gospel can never work. Can never work. Because it's a false gospel. You said you'd never leave me, God. You said you'd never forsake me, God. But man, man, it feels like you have. Everything seems to be going wrong. Lost my dream job lost my spouse or maybe getting ready to lose my spouse or my family. My kids are gone. You took my kids. Lost my home. I've lost my health. Everything I've hoped for has been given or have been, has been given joy in my life. It's gone. My dreams are gone. Poof. Vanished. We, it, I, I can't imagine most of us not have been in that place at some point in our life. But here's where it gets good. Daryl Block, in his commentary, says something profound. It's the simplest statement, but the most profound statement. And Jimmy and I were working on a sermon this week. I thought it was so helpful when he brought this to the table in our time. God is not confined to cities or shrines. Why is that matter? Because it was never about Jerusalem or a building in Jerusalem. God doesn't need those things. This means that God's people are capable of being, God is capable of being with his people in every season, in every place, no matter how dark and how dry it may feel. Just like God tabernacling with his people in Babylon, please know that He has not changed one second to this day. He tabernacles with us, namely in His Son Jesus, who came and absorbed all our sin, debt, and defeated death. But He tabernacles with us through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is ours forever and ever and ever. It's worked the same way from Genesis to Revelation, friends. Always has. Always will. I mean, just think about our study in 1 Peter this summer. Is that not the primary message that we were, we, were, we were flooded with all the way through that study? Of course it was. See, God's blessing is not connected to those who don't suffer. See, that's why our, one of our thoughts, one of the things that we kind of fall into sometimes is if, if I'm not suffering, that must mean God's blessing me, which, by the way, can be a very subtle way in which, God, which the Satan can come pull you right out, right? And prune you. To believe that somehow or another... If I'm experiencing blessing, if I'm experiencing no suffering, then all of a sudden God must be blessing my life. I'm doing really well. That, be careful with that. But the opposite's true. Just because we experience suffering does not mean that we are absent of God's blessing. Right? It it seems to me as we read almost the entirety of the Bible that God doesn't just work in green pastures, although He does but that more so he seems to work in his people's lives in the famine, in the drought. Read Daniel. Read the rest of Ezekiel. Read any of the prophets. God's there in the famine, in the drought, in the midst of the most darkest, despairiest people could ever imagine, and he's there. And if you don't think God is there, repent and believe. Repent and believe. What else does this mean for us? What it means by extension of that is that God's people have always, always have been and always will be a people of promise, abiding in God's covenant. And what I mean by that, to be God's people, is to remember that God is, if God does not exist, does not abide in cities and shrines, He's with his perpetually exilic people in whatever space and time God allows us to be there to remind us that he tabernacles with us and that we are his eternal people nonetheless. And so we relate to God only by holding on to God's covenant promises. That's it. Faith in God's promise, that is all we have. I have nothing else to give. I do not have enough obedience. I do not have enough good morality. I do not have enough good behavior in my my soul to be able to earn the trust and goodness, the the, the salvation of God. I can only trust in one thing and one thing alone that God made a promise and God's going to stick to that promise. That is all it is. Friends, there is this weird triumphalistic movement that it seems to be capturing American evangelicalism. And it's this idea that what Christians are supposed to be doing is taking over everything because the world is getting really bad and we need to take over the whole world. And, over, and I'm just going to have to this Let me riff for a second. Can I do that? Can I just riff for a minute? Okay, because you guys are all good Reformed people, at least most of you are. If you have run across this idea... Oh, elders, be careful. Help me out here. Um called theonomy. Theonomy is this idea that the Christian's mission is to take over governments and over civil realms. If you've run into that, if you're reading guys who've made that kind of stuff popular, some of you guys may not like this, Doug Wilson... I just want to challenge you a little bit on that. Now, I have a whole lot of opinions about that, dude, all right? But we can set that aside for a second. I'm not going to riff there for this morning, okay? You want to riff? Let's go out in the hallway after this is over with. But here's the reality that I want us to kind of understand. God's mission is not reconstruction. Mission for his church is not reconstruction. It is not reestablishing the Mosaic law as the central law of the land. Mosaic law's purposes are, 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 have been fulfilled. They're done because they are ultimately pointed to the law of God by which God would then put that, he would put his law in their mouths. He would put his law in their hearts because his people couldn't have it in their hearts until Jesus comes along. Make sense? That's been the whole thing. So for us to go out there and think that the mission of the church is to just take over cities and take over governments is not the mission of the church. We have some wicked magistrates, friends. But the way that you leverage the world we live in is by preaching the gospel and let the gospel change hearts and you build the church. I am a two kingdoms guy. Two kingdoms is the idea that a lot of the reformers were trying to recover, Luther and Calvin especially, about Augustinians, Augustine's city of God, city of man distinction. Does that make sense to you guys? That God rules, but he rules in two different ways. That God has a rule over the whole world. He's always ruling. He never stopped ruling. But he has a rule over his people, the kingdom of God, the church. And our job right now is to proclaim the kingdom of God and preach the gospel. Still living in the world, having one foot in one place and one foot in the other place. But as we're in this place with the kingdom of the world, we're to preach the gospel. And we pray that God will change hearts. You want to deal with wicked magistrates? Preach the gospel. Share the gospel with your friends who are looking for hope to diseases, who are looking for hope in economies, who are looking for hope in racism, who are looking for hope in everything in the world, they're looking for hope in everything else but Jesus. The gospel message is the only message that can change that. That makes sense. I'm sorry to get so, but this is one of the things that's driving me crazy right now as a pastor. I believe God's doing some good work through a lot of Christians that I disagree with. But this is one that when it grabs your heart, it will manipulate the gospel right out of your grasp. Stick to the main things, my friends. That's a good Alistair Begg moment right there, right? Uh, stick to the main things. Preach the gospel in season and out of season and trust the results to God. His kingdom will not fail. So let's finish it up. God's true covenant people are those who continually grow in in their love for God and His presence among them. And this has always been the indicator. Always been the indicator. Think back through the entire Bible. God has been a sanctuary for His people in every exilic moment that God's people have faced. He heard His people's cries in Egypt. He Tabernacles with them in the wilderness before they conquer the land of Canaan. He consecrates his presence with them in the Holy of Holies in the temple for a period. He sanctuaries with them in Babylon in exile, even through the 400 years of silence as he did, as he did not speak to them in those days. And he most perfectly, he most perfectly fulfills his presence with his people through Jesus the new and better temple. And He abides in us through the work of the Holy Spirit as you and I become a missional temple to the world. Yes? That's who we are. The new heavens and the new earth will one day consummate the fullness of God's presence among His people for eternity. Full stop. So as we come to the table this morning, Remember, we are eating a covenant meal. That's what we do. You might be a little hungry. This is not going to satisfy you. Your physical hunger. But it will satisfy and hold you still within the covenant bonds of God's love for you. It will remind you that you're part of something bigger than this world has to offer. So let's pray And ask God to do that work in our heart as we prepare for the table this morning. Jesus, help us.